Hello, it's Matt here from the Shark Live Royal podcast. Uh, as you know, we've now reached the end of our Dance with Dragons coverage. So over the next few weeks, we're going to have a series of bonus podcasts called The Shark Cage, and these will contain spoilers. So um, if you want to come to the Winds of Winter when we do end up reading it completely spoiler-free, it might be worth skipping the next few weeks. Um, we'll always have a clear warning like this at the start of every spoiler podcast. Uh, but if you dare... Join us as we enter the uncharted waters and open up the shark cage. Ariel Hotar, one of the biggest badasses in the books, who has, has had criminally little developments in the series, basically gets stabbed with a fruit knife and goes down without, <laughs> without so much as a whimper. Right now... Here is what has happened in the TV series. A massive battle has taken place in the frozen north. And I've got 20 quid says nobody burned all of those bodies. Hmm. Leading us to the possibility that perhaps... Hmm. Zombie Stannis? (laughs) Hello and welcome to the second of our special bonus podcasts on... A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, or A Song of Ice and Fire, whichever way you want to call it. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. How are you doing, Dave? I'm alright, thanks. You took me by surprise there. I thought you were going to do your whole warning, warning, here be spoilers spiel before I had to kind of pop up and uh, and uh, use my voice. Yeah, no, I thought we'd do this together, the, the spoiler warning. So, yeah, all right. we, we, we're in a bit of a strange place at the moment, because obviously Shark Live Royal is a podcast about books and reading them. And we don't actually have a book at the moment. We're um, we've just gone beyond uh, a dance with dragons. Uh, last week we did a look at the preview chapters um, for Winds of Winter, and for the next few weeks we're going to just be taking a look at the Game of Thrones series, which has gone beyond the books now, just to see what we can glean about what to expect um, over the course of the next couple of books from uh, George Martin. We're also going to discuss some of the like top fan theories, but all this means. You know, um, the sort of spoiler gloves are off. So just beware that we will be talking about everything we know from the books and how it influences the series. Everything we know from the series and how it influences the books, plus these sort of fan theories as well. So basically, <laughs> it's a no holds barred, isn't it, Dave? I'm I'm so much looking forward to this. As you know, I have I have persevered with um with the series in like. In the system we decided on, which is I don't read ahead, I don't go and read the Wikipedia articles, which is like something I do for every piece of fiction I ever encounter, but I haven't done that. I haven't gone on a wiki of Ice and Fire, I haven't checked out the fan theories, I haven't done anything, and I've read this book one chapter at a time for, when did we start this? 2013? Solid, a solid three (laughs) years ago. So I am so excited about this now because that means I actually get to get into all of these things and speculate. Whereas previously, whenever on a podcast we have speculated, I, I've kind of gone, hey, I wonder if that means such and such and such and such. And your response has always been a, like a, a, out, like breathtakingly professional poker face. Mm, I don't know, Dave. I don't maybe... <laughs> We shall see. And I'm like, when? When shall we fucking see? When are we going to see? And the answer is today. Mm. I am so excited about this. <laughs> so today, we're going, to, we're going to do a quick catch-up of the three Game of Thrones Series 6 episodes that have sort of been 
put out so far. I think by the time you listen to this, the fourth one might have come out, but we're gonna end, we're gonna end up being um, a few days behind, probably a week behind. Um, but that's just how how we're gonna do it. Because uh, so, we have jobs, ladies and gentlemen. We have things we, we need to do with our lives. <laughs> we just can't get it out. We're like within <laughs> twenty four hours of the series going out. But yeah. anyway, so so yeah, so this will be. Um, we just have a look at episodes one, two, and three. And then seeing how long that takes, if we've got time, we'll do um, we'll do one of the theories as well. Um, I was making the notes for uh, episodes one, two, three for this podcast and realising that <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to cover. So, um... <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no, in that there was a lot of stuff when watching the, at least the first two episodes. Admittedly, in the final frame of the second episode and the whole of the third episode, shit gets real. It's like they've strapped the thing to a fucking rocket. It, it is as if... Um, D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, uh, David Benioff, yeah, um, have um, have decided, that, like all fans of A Song of Ice and Fire, that they are fucking tired of hanging around for the plot to get started. So they just like, <laughs> lit the fuse and stood back. Yeah. But for the first, certainly the first episode, I felt like it was all catch up. It was all stuff that I kind of already knew because it had already been mentioned at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Hmm. Well, let's but, go through it. Yeah, yeah. it feels to me the first few episodes, um, yeah, is a. Uh, the yeah trying to sort of zoom in on the plot and also just the great the great character cull of 2016 <laughs> <laughs> fucking hell yes <laughs> the body count just goes through the roof again it was wasn't it it was mental yeah. and and do you think because I, I you know i realize i've ragged on them a little bit for this but do you have you thought i was fair throughout this series in my kind of increasing frustration with them turning it into the sex and death show on tv because <laughs> because i i felt particularly at the end of the, the fifth series where they killed off Barristan Selmy, and they killed mm. off Marcella, and they and even at the start of this series as well, we're going to talk about this in the first episode, aren't we? Where they they kill off two of the major characters from Dawn just because. <laughs> well, and, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, but so I felt a bit like the TV series. They were kind of like, "Hey, everybody went mental when we killed everybody at the Red Wedding. What if we did that every week?" <laughs> um, do you think I've been fair in that frustration, or to you has that been appropriate? Like to this um, point. It feels a little bit to me like they're just um, trying to as quickly as possible because we can see that they've decided they're going to do this series and then a two-parter next series. You know, so like uh, yeah, like, a, like an extended sort of fourteen-episode final season. But yeah. that means there is uh, George Martin's written this as as we've said a few times as a, as a long history with which means there are rather than it being tightly plotted, although there is obviously plot. But there are loads of subplots that might go somewhere and then don't go anywhere. And uh, Gen- Gendry, like... we hardly knew ye. Gen- Can I say oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Gendry. Uh, is he ever going to come back? Is he still rowing across the sea? I reckon the final scene is him just sort of still rowing. Or he'll, yeah. to, he'll just row into the final scene. There'll be someone on the, on the Iron Throne the end yeah. and then they'll just sort of cut to a wide of just Gendry just rowing <laughs> rowing yeah. his way into King's Landing yeah they're what missing, it they're missing <laughs> <laughs> am I late for it what do you mean already finished what do you mean climactic face off between the forces of ice and the forces of fire dramatically in front of the oh for fuck's sake <laughs> and he's just absolutely ripped because he's been rowing for like yeah. five years. <laughs> and that, that brings us around in a nice circle, doesn't it? All the way back to the old man in the sea, because by the time he gets there, he will be in his mid 80s. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think it's um, a lot of it to do with the fact they've just suddenly decided 
we're going to need to focus on fewer storylines. Let's, I mean, <clears throat> the Dawn one, which we'll talk about, just feels like they've they did a series of it and thought, you know what, this isn't working. We gotta get out. Let's just call it quick. <laughs> just kill every fucker. Yeah. 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 Um. So let let's have a quick sort of look back at the first episode, sort of oh, season opener. Yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, so we start off. It goes straight into the wall. To be honest, the the wall stuff is parallel. Is one of the few areas where it's still parallel with the books, isn't it? So the last yeah. we know in the books is John stabbed at the wall, and yeah. we open at season six with John lying dead at the wall. Um, uh, the difference is that Davos, far from being wandering about doing his stuff down at Kings at uh, White Harbor. Yeah. He's he's up here forming a, a strange sort of sudden alliance with Dolores Ed, um, <laughs> which just kind of com- kind of comes out of nowhere. And then you've got on the other side Sir Alistair, who is uh, is obviously leading the leading the mutineers. Yeah, uh, but I mean we'll pro- we can probably sort of come back to that um, a bit later on because there's a lot more to say about John. But just yeah. the uh, it's a bit weird, isn't it? The wall because you've got people like Davos there, but yeah. you've also no longer have people like Gren and Pip because they've actually been killed off in the books uh, in the series and they're still still going strong in the books yeah um and I think that's one area where they've kind of robbed themselves because in the books there was a better sense of John having his little crew like Mm. these people who like kind of came up with him and and you know had you know this shared experience and all that sort of thing um uh whereas in the tv series it's like well they're dead aren't they because death um uh, yeah, it is. It was. It, there was a lot of tension in the first kind of Jon Snow's line on the thing. I actually saw. I re- I think I ruined it for some of the people I was watching the first episode with, though. Like I kind of let an intemperate comment slip my lips because I noticed that Kit Harrington's name was in the in the title credits. Oh yeah, of the first episode. So I was like, oh, so he's alive then? And it's like, half the people in the room who were as into it as I am were like, kind of, uh... and the other half of the people in the room were like. I just blown their fucking minds. They were like, "What <laughs> fucking spoilers in the credits? Is there something?" <laughs> I was like, "So I was, I was in, I was on the naughty chair for the rest of that viewing session." I'll tell you. <laughs> well, especially when the whole the whole episode goes by and he doesn't come back from the dead. So you're like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." yeah. Okay. So I, I tried. I'll, I'll level with you. I tried to style it out at that point. I tried to be like, "What psych? What? Still a surprise, wasn't it? Eh?" <laughs> Did, didn't work. Did not work. Did yeah. not work. The bit I liked about um, about this bit is when uh, Davos turns to Dolores Ed and says, you know, which men do you trust? And Ed looks round and says, the men in this room. But I thought he was going to look round and he's, he's just basically thinking, there's, there's just all extras. There's no, yeah. no characters left. <laughs> <laughs> Where is everybody? That's right. Uh- <laughs> I thought you were going to say that he would sort of look around and instead of breaking the fourth wall, he'd just look around and be proper Dolores Ed and be like, no one. <laughs> no one yeah. I don't trust that not myself not you not me not him not the wolf not anyone no one I'm Dolores Ed clues in the name uh, we, we go from from one area where it's still quite close to the books to um, one area where it definitely isn't this is where Sansa who is nowhere near Winterfell in the uh, in the books yeah. is fleeing with Theon and then we're yeah. involved, there's this massive sort of fight scene between Brienne who turns up again nothing to do with the books and yeah. um and pod as yeah. they go sort of toe to toe with some boltons and uh yeah. and kick their asses yeah this is quite interesting i mean it's it, I don't, I, there's not really much we can talk about here because it's just so far removed from the books isn't it yeah i mean i but i will say this i have a strong sense of those storylines being really masterfully edited 
So for all that I've given the makers of the TV series a hard time on a lot of stuff, I have to say they are good at noticing when there's a whole lot of superfluous non-plot that you can get rid of and still have the same outcome occur. And one of them is we don't need Gene Pool. We don't apparently need any of this shit that's going on at the Eerie, which is sad because I I like the Eerie as a setting. and I think it's really interesting. Mm. Um, But they decided not to do any of that. Um, And... um, and instead have Sansa there, um, and Brienne's not off doing whatever Brienne is doing, apparently almost dying several times, several chapters in a row. She's not doing any of that. Um, uh, and so I loved, all, I loved that. I love the way they pruned it down and brought these characters together, because it's a lot of characters I actually do care about doing something interesting, which is a fairly low bar to clear for a TV series, you would think, but actually for Game of Thrones, it's like, hey, it's not another episode of Arya walking around Westeros. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Arya Stark, the hell she's calling herself now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I liked it because I like Brienne. I like that she's still alive. I like um, Sansa. Well, actually, I think Sansa irritates me, but I sort of like her arc and what they did with it there, with Brienne yeah. coming to her and being like, there's this whole kind of, you know, she swears allegiance and this is kind of courtly, queenly thing going on. Because, of course, she is the heir of Winterfell right now. Hmm. Um, and um, And I love that they did that. Um, and I love how that felt. I love Pod still being this complete, like, he's a, he's a total numpty, but he's the most genial numpty imaginable. And I just, I sort of love that he helped her through the vow. And even Theon was doing something decent, you know, like it was just, mm. it was the nice combination of characters who previously frustrated me doing interesting stuff together, clearly forwarding the plot and a lot of lovely big structural callbacks, you know, that there's, uh, Brienne is swearing allegiance with the sword that was made out of the melted remains of Ned Stark's sword, which is the sword that was used to kill him. You yeah, know, yeah. all of that, like all of that resonance. And I was like, yes, this is what I'm here for. This is a song of ice and fire. He's on such a huge canvas that there's so much opportunity for plot moments like that. And he almost never does them. Mm. Um, and so I really loved it when there was this, this little kind of all of these rhyming moments coming back together um, that he just hasn't done in the books. Yeah. The actual sort of hand-to-hand combat fight scene is pretty, really good as well. And um, yeah. Pod, Pod actually manages to sort of hold his own as well. Cause I, as soon as... Brienne rising, I thought, oh, this is going to be close. And then Pod appears, I thought, oh, I think he might die. <laughs> but he confirmed the expectations. So yes. Oh, I, and you know, you know what though, Matt? I've, I've got my own, my own little pet boutique fan theory <laughs> over here. Pod for the Iron Throne. It's going to happen. <laughs> Podrick Payne for the Iron Throne. Um, that's my money's on that. <laughs> he keeps surviving. He's not dead yet. Yeah, it's probably it's, that's probably more likely than my uh, Casso King of the Seals becoming uh, <laughs> the, uh, ruler of Westbrook. That we, we a theory that emerged purely and only because we needed something to rival the genuine, actual, live on the internet fan theory. Varys is a mermaid. Because if you can have <laughs> Varys is a mermaid, if you can have that, then you can definitely have a man who is literally a seal with a crown on, <laughs> clapping his flippers together and going, "Westeros." And one thing that was weird about that battle scene, though, about this fight, um, which struck me, was so the the Boltons turn up, like hunting, obviously, uh, these uh, Sansa and Theon with a yeah. load of like ravenous hunting dogs, and yeah. then the fight starts, 
And it, where do the dogs go? Are they just sort of yeah, like, oh, yeah. that's cool. We're going uh-huh. to uh-huh. bounce, all right? Well, <laughs> it's like, oh, clearly clearly, there needs to be some, you know, heavy, heavy foreshadowing uh, plot callback shit that needs to go down here. And quite frankly, having a ravenous basset hound trying to munch your face off would, uh, I get it, I ruin the tone. I get it. You know, we're not welcome here. So we're just going to, just going to peace out yeah <laughs> ladies yo yeah. <laughs> um, actually odd. i did see uh, like in the aftermath of this of this episode i saw a couple of it, um headlines online kind of you know oh this is why the dogs disappeared sort of thing oh, on yeah, which really? matt i did not click because matt's bunker full of spoilers so if you're telling me that you didn't find those 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 episodes i think we might have to rethink this extreme chastity belt approach to my innocence as regards fan theories and the development of the plot because now we haven't got a clue right we don't know i say say we find a third way there we just throw it out there so if anyone has come across any any theory as to why um these ravenous um vicious hunting dogs who we see regularly attack and kill people um, just suddenly decide to to run away when um, I assume run away when mm. battle commences. Would it be interesting to know? It's probably well, I, no, you, you I, can no. come up with reasons, I suppose, quite easily. But I it's quite. No, funny. I, don't, I don't know. Can you? Because the last thing I saw was them sniffing around. Like they found Sansa. They're like next to Sansa, sniffing around. Yeah, they're straining at the leash, going, "Yeah, come on, I'm going to yeah, eat her." They're even and- off the leash. But then there's this thing where um, Brienne turns up. And yeah. in the excitement of it, it's as if the the, audi- the 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 hounds are themselves part of the audience, and they will yeah. just come back and go, "Fucking hell, it's Brienne!" Oh, brilliant! Let's have a watch this fight scene. You know, getting yeah. the little doggy paws on the on the the popcorn and just munching away. Oh, it's great! I love this. She's fantastic. I haven't seen her for you know munch, munch, munch. Yeah, maybe it's the the guy who's got them on the leashes drags them off, you know, he sees a couple of people killed, the, the dog's trying to get over there to help out, he's going, it's over, Fido, come on, we must leave. <laughs> <laughs> come away now. Leave. It's brilliant, it's the Westerosi dog wrangler version of, leave him, John, he's not worth it, he's not worth it, leave him. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that was weird. Um, speaking of weird, speaking of plot divergence, um, we were still relatively close, sort of, um, Neck and neck with with the dawn plots until this episode. Oh, I mean, a lot hell. of a lot of differences have happened, but sort of broadly, you still had sort of Dorian in charge. He was sort of sitting back talking about peace, but he didn't know if it was genuine or not. It seems like it was genuine in the series. Um, yeah, yeah. So two things happen here. Then Jamie returns to King's Landing with Marcella, who is dead, and Cersei obviously finds out. He's devastated, and um, we have this whole revolution in dawn where just from out of nowhere um Ariel Hotar biggest one of the biggest badasses in the book who has has had criminally little sort of um developments in the series basically gets stabbed with a fruit knife and goes down without <laughs> without so much as a whimper <laughs> yeah, and then it's, it's, and then Doran's killed yeah and it's like i mean that 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 did pretty much sort of blow me away because You've set the like Ario Hota has been set up like there's there's the seeds there of an of an absolute fan favorite right yeah Ario Hota total badass fantastic character dead with a fruit knife with a fruit knife by the way I mean this guy's <laughs> supposed to be like terrifying and they're just like they just they just to to use my new favorite phrase to describe the way in which this plot is occasionally moved forward they just noped him out they just yeah. there we go. Done. <laughs> End of. And then they do the same to this poor bastard who's sitting in a, sitting in a wheelchair. And I'm sitting. Do you know what I'm sitting there thinking, Matt? 
know what I'm sitting yeah. there thinking? That man was in Star Trek. Show a little <laughs> respect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So they and they they actually there's that little scene on the boat as well immediately after where they turn up in Tristan's sort of quarters on his boat yeah. and yeah. two of the sand snakes kill him as well. Yeah, um, I think part of the problem is I'd, I've never really bought the sand snakes as being a particularly no, good characters. They're not, they're not interesting, are they? No. And and the way you can tell that they're not interesting is that George Martin doesn't have them do anything in the books. Mm. Like, they're mentioned in passing, but none of them are POV characters, and they're not followed around, and they're certainly not this, like, mad-as-a-box-of-snakes kind of, you know, these sisters egging each other on to increasingly horrifying acts of violence, you know. Mm. Um, so... All they're good for, really, is there's definitely going to be some violence during this scene. And you don't need more characters who are good at that in Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know? So, so, so I mean, Dawn's massively paired back from the book. So in the books, you've basically got Doran, who's still sort of almost like the puppet master, and he sent all these, he sent all these sand snakes off on various missions. Um, and he's still got this long game th- um, sort of plan obviously he's, he might be hooking up with john connington and the guy over there he's he's still hoping that daenerys is going to come back with quentin he's got all these irons in the fire and that's mm. just been that's just all sliced through in the series then now we've just got a very simple um the dawnish the, the land of the land of the crazy lady violent ladies is got is still angry with king's <clears throat> landing and there's going to be a war that seems to yeah. be the sum yeah. total of the plot that's, in Dawn, that's yeah that's all there is and and I, I tell you the thing that really irritates me about that is that prince doran i think was this really interesting character i so the whole world of a, a song of ice and fire is um very much about warfare and violence and the war of all against all and you know it's all about power and power's about who you fuck and who you kill and that's it and that's the whole thing and human nature is is fundamentally a dark thing and um peace if ever it tries to raise its head is laughable at best right Mm. and i thought that doran was going to be a was and is in the books a really interesting example of somebody who tries to get stuff done without getting the sword out of the sheath like Mm. call it peace theory if you want i think it's just a bit more it's more kind of diplomacy than necessarily proper kind of peace theory peace like Mm. kind of Martin Luther King gandhi kind of stuff but at the very least it was a new approach to things and sure there were people in the book who were like ah that makes you weak but not everybody and he still has this influence and he still has this kind of presence and gravitas whereas in the in the tv series they just used him as a foil for the complete laughability and and patheticness of the idea of doing anything other with conflict than fighting Mm. it with a bigger sword than the other guy and Mm. quite apart from being you know lazily uninteresting i also think that's a little bit that's that's kind of buying the depressing undertone of a song of ice and fire you know far too readily and Mm. and leaving it unquestioned um you know with with far too little far too little effort just like oh yeah i mean of course it's self-evidently true that killing people is the best the only way to be really safe and look see here's this guy who tries not to kill people and keep himself safe and he's been stabbed in the back by his own sister yeah fuck him anyway Mm back to the death and it's just it's just there was a potential for a bit of nuance there which was completely lost mm. and that saddened me yeah it feels like um the the, the dawn thing as well it's, it's a broader thing where because none of the guards do anything looks like they're all in on it yeah um, i think that's supposed to suggest there is this sort of what what the um 
what the sand snakes and uh, what uh, the paramour are saying is true. Um, mm. That that everybody in Dawn is desperate to go to war, and it's this, it's just this this guy who's holding it all up, and they've got to get rid of him. Which again yeah. makes it. <clears throat> I was I was thinking, is that that realistic? Is the do you really get a population all straining at the leash to to sort of go to war when I suppose possibly? Well, it's an interesting doing, idea. But. You do in Westeros, don't you? And that's mm. the thing. And I think that's the, that's what I'm objecting to really is that in Westeros you really do have a world in which whole populations can be well-rounded human beings on the one level, but can on the other hand be absolutely baying for blood without mm. really being. You know, there's not the kind of propaganda machine that creates that kind of mindset i think in in populations these days um mm. what there is is just this sort of original violence if you like that just seems to be in the way that everybody thinks in in westeros and mm. you know what it becomes is quite yeah like i say it's just a bit one note just a bit oh yeah you know once again it was turning it into the sex and death show instead mm. of a more interesting more nuanced kind of portrait of what human beings are like yeah um, another uh, difference to the to the book, big difference to the books. We go across to Marine, where as we as we know from our um, very kindly read out last recap for, from the Winds of Winter chapter, um, Barristan is rallying the troops for a, a fight for a war. Hey. It looks like we're sort of the timeline's a bit further back in the series here. I reckon this is still going to happen, but um, with Tyrion and Varys instead. So it's the Tyrion and Varys roadshow in Marine. Yeah. Um, as they romance, yeah, as they try to run the city in Daenerys's absence, which uh, yeah, which is pretty interesting. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that, I've, I'm, I don't think there's much I've got to talk about there. No, just to say that Tyrion's a very popular character for a good reason because he's played by Peter Dinklage with absolutely fantastic. I think he is a bit too genial in the TV series. Like he's gone to some fairly dark places in the books, yeah. and in the in the TV series they've had him do those pretty horrifying things killing his own father, strangling his lover with the golden chain. But mm. they, had, they haven't really shown like a sea change in the nature of his character in quite the same way. And that's perhaps that's a missed opportunity. But at the same time, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to dislike the Tyrion Varys bromance because, you know, it's, uh, it's really light. And actually I, I said, I think I tweeted this even at the end of, um, at the end of the last series a year ago was like in the end of like the great character kill off of 2016 2015 i guess um mm-hmm. at the end of season five the only thing that was in any way light appealing or enjoyable about the last the last episode of the last series of game of thrones was like they, they literally killed off six people in a row and then they had one <laughs> scene where Tyrion and Varys exchange some like lethal weapon level you know <laughs> kind of partner banter and then they killed three more people and then it was the end of the series and yeah. i was like oh cool at least we have this like lightning of tone with those two guys yeah yeah i wonder if um in this in the books when um when george martin introduced penny to it he when he started writing her in he thought this might turn it into more of a Tyrion Varys kind of thing where there's a bit of more levity and, and bring Tyrion back a bit but then he suddenly realized that Tyrion's character it just, it just didn't work and yeah. it drove Tyrion to an even darker place yeah. um, and I, I'm just wondering whether the the series has, has sort of managed to successfully do what Martin was maybe thinking of doing <laughs> um, yeah I think an interesting idea uh, yeah, I think George Martin could very easily have got Varys all the way across there, um, mm. but he chose not to, and I don't know wh- wh- particularly why. Um, although I noticed that in the in the third episode of the TV series of season six, 
that Varys's little birds make a reappearance, um, mm. but in somebody else's hands. So maybe maybe there is some, a role they're going to play in the future of the plot. And in the books, he was like, yeah. okay, got to keep Varys there for that then. I think that's a bit yeah. of a missed opportunity because I really do love his interaction with Tyrion. I think that's a very interesting thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, Daenerys is... Um, so she's been captured by uh, the Dothraki again. She meets another Carl. Another, another IT engineer. <laughs> uh, oh, look at Matt! Can I applaud you for a callback that goes back to the first <laughs> series? The first one, book yeah. we did this. Brilliant! Yeah. I'd forgotten about Carl Drogo, the IT technician. <laughs> Carl Drogo. Yeah. If you if you haven't heard that, is is it kind of obvious now? But yeah, um, we just imagine. Just think he sounds like a yeah some kind of. Engineer from Barnsley. Bar- when your Bar- email goes down in the office, I need to call Carl from IT. Who? <laughs> Carl who? Carl Drogo. Carl Drogo. <laughs> yeah, so this is another Carl. Um, I mean, this is all, um, I think, again, similar to where the book's going. She sort of ends up in this Kalasar, um, although she doesn't make quite the entrance she does in the books. Um, something that made, something that didn't quite sit for me with this, the way the series has done it. The, mm. When she lands with the dragon in the books, it's obvious mm. who she is. Here, yeah. um, I think either it, it, it should have been either the the Colossar don't know who she is, or they do straight away. It's this girl with this pale girl with white hair, um, mm. who's wandering around. And if you know enough that when she says, "I'm Cal Drogo's, you know, widow," you're like, yeah. "Oh crap! Of course she is." Then you, yeah. I think they'd recognise her straight away. <laughs> Is it the fact that he's yeah. taking her to say it? So they go, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, of course you are. So that's uncomfortable, isn't it? They should have played that for far more social embarrassment than they gave it in the TV series. Instead of being like, yes, of course, and I am the cull now, so I am still in control. Yeah. They should have just gone, oh gosh, oh I'm sorry. They should have been far more English about it. You know, kind of like, oh, <laughs> awkward orcs, bit orcs. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and this whole this whole scene in um, in the TV series is one of the ones, one of the many ones in the first two series of the book where I was like, ah, oh, sorry, first two episodes of the series where I was like, oh, this is a bit, this is a bit dull because I kind of knew that already, you know, like yeah. the they they take quite a long time to establish that uh, Daenerys's kind of fate is to be, you know, she's the, the widow of a cow, so yeah, she has to go and join the um, join the whatever it is the. The whoever it is in Vastothrak, like all mm. of the all of the widows, the, yeah. the, the 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 world's biggest episode of flipping loose women. Um, <laughs> it's how I imagine it. All talking candidly about the size of their their cow's penises, yeah. um, but um, uh, like in in the book, that's a one liner in the middle of a very interesting kind of. She's stranded in the the middle of the Lothraki Sea. Whereas in the TV series, they've given a one scene, one five minute scene per episode. To, to establish the fact that she's stranded with these old crones. And it's mm. like, yeah, we know. Mm. So, yeah, yeah it's a bit... Yeah. The, 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 the uh, episode one ends with this quite striking reveal, uh, Old Lady Mel. So Melisandre takes off yeah. this, um, takes off this uh, necklace, which is a nice callback to the books, because in the books, obviously, she sticks this thing on Rattleshirt, which, yeah. on Mance Raider, which makes him look like Rattleshirt. Um, yeah. She takes this sort of little little red necklace off, which she wears in the books as well, and turns from this uh, obviously very very attractive young woman into like some, like two hundred year old old lady. Yeah. Um, 
like almost like really like frightening, almost monstrous looking woman, old, old yeah. woman. Yeah. Um, there, this is really interesting because we'll get into this at a later date. There are quite a few theories around who she is and um, what yeah. she's done in the past, what Melisandre's history is, and uh, knowing this that she's really old. But yeah. was this a was this a shock to you? It was definitely the most interesting bit about the, the whole first episode. The rest of the first episode was just like previously on Westeros. Yeah. Um, and because I'd read A Dance with Dragons, I was ahead of it. Like every, Basically everything that happened in the first episode of the series, I knew. Um, except the Sansa thing, and even that was a setup for something rather than something itself. Mm. Um, uh, whereas um, the Melisandre thing was genuinely new and genuinely mm. new information. I thought that was really interesting. And I particularly liked the effect it had in the second episode. Um where she she experiences a crisis of faith yeah and uh, obviously we'll come on to that but the i find the i find that a very truthful depiction of religious faith Mm. um because i i think i don't know many people who who hold genuinely and deeply hold a religious belief who don't at a certain point face doubt about that belief Mm. and i actually think um certainly in i'm not qualified to talk about any other faith tradition but in my own faith tradition in christianity that's actually a fundamental part of what it means to be a believer is to face your doubts and to to ask whether what you believe is true and to to look that stuff in the face Mm. and so um well while i'm keen for there to be as few parallels as possible between the insane religion of the red god and my own faith (laughs) there was there was actually something really interesting there for me about the fact that you know, she she shows doubt rather than being this kind of one-dimensional religious psycho who does all does all these crazy things and says all this gnomic stuff and is probably deceiving people and manipulating them to her own ends. Mm. You know, for her to face the possibility that things might not be real, I thought was great and I thought was very realistic and very made her a, a dramatically more interesting character mm. um, than somebody whose job previously has just been to be in the room and to wiggle her eyebrows a bit and kind of go you're frightened of me, aren't you? And it's like, yeah, because you're one-dimensionally <laughs> evil. So, of course I am. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I liked that a lot. All of that said, however, I will say this. It was it was quite obvious CGI when they made her into an old lady, and fair enough. Not easy mm. to do. Quite expensive. But I could have done without them making her look quite so much like Jim Carrier's Scrooge in the recent A Christmas <laughs> Carol film. Yeah, there was an element of that, wasn't there? <laughs> Yeah. What, what did you make of all of this? <laughs> do, you think, do you really expect her to turn to the camera and just go, Tuppence is Tuppence. <laughs> as long as she doesn't turn to the camera and do recite or in any way refer to anything from Scrooge, Matt, I am a happy man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was, um, I thought it was interesting from a book point of view because this is something that's been hinted at through the books about her history and um, the things that she's seen suggest that she's a lot older than she is. Um, yeah. But it's never been made explicit. And this is where, in the series at least, it is explicit now. She's much older than, than it. Um, I, to, I also thought, to be honest, um, well, my first thought was, oh, poor Stannis, if only he knew. What do you mean? What do you mean, Matt? Strangely... Like quasi quasi undead, unnaturally long lived women 
They need love too, man. They need love too. <laughs> I'm just wondering if the first time Stannis got with Melisandre, it was like a, a drunken night or something, and he woke up in the morning and was like, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, this I was not expecting. Oh, <laughs> she, she, her makeup does wonders for her. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, the lighting in that club was not up to snuff, was it? Makes <laughs> you just sort of over. What did I drink last night? Yeah. Well, and to be honest with you, she I think she could be forgiven for, for thinking the same thing. He's not an attractive man, Stannis, is he? Like, rolling over in bed and looking at him, I think she'd be in a fairly good position to be like, oh, well, it's nice to do a favour for people once in a while, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, actually. I saw a, um, a post online about... Um, Speaking of whether or not Stannis is attractive, um, someone lamenting the, uh, the the constant loss of the sexy older man in Westeros, like they always <laughs> keep getting killed. Like, uh, <laughs> you, had, you had Tywin Lannister, you had uh, uh, Ned Stark, obviously. You had yeah. what's his face, um, as you just said, uh, Stannis has been killed. All yeah. these like older dudes. Who, uh, I think got... it's stretching the definition. Of, am I missing something here? I feel like it's stretching the definition of sexy older man to include. As good an actor as Stephen Delane is, to include Stannis in the category <laughs> "sexy older man," unless you're really into people whose face looks like a thunderstorm, like yeah, mm, yeah no. Uh, well, and also I'd say if you're still into, you know, if you're still into your sexy older man, then there's one guy in the series who's still carrying that standard for everybody. <laughs> Khaleesi. <laughs> <laughs> The best thing about him is, you see, he's also got the sort of unrequainted love aspect, which he has, you know, making him sympathetic as yeah. well as as yeah. well as. Although yeah. he is looking significantly more wrinkled this time out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to episode two. Then, episode two, we start with Bran. Hello, Bran. He's disappeared for a whole season. Way. Um, <laughs> This is um, again uh, similar to where the book Le- leaves John, um, where mm. we were at the start of series six of Game of Thrones. Is pretty much exactly where we are in the books with Bran. He's made it to this uh, old dude in a tree, and he's um, he's starting to experience his visions. Um, mm. So the first flashback we get with Bran is at Winterfell, seeing his dad Ned fighting with Benjen, kicking his ass basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Hodor's there, and Hodor speaks. Yeah. And this again, this is this is beyond books, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. So Hodor used to be able to speak and now doesn't. What do you make of that? Well, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting. I have to say, this bit um, in the in the TV series was really nice because I've like it's been very easy for me to write off um, uh, Rory. Oh, what's his name? The actor who plays Hodor in the in the TV series. Anyway, right. Like it's been easy for me to write him off because he's you know it, it, he does only have one line. He sort of lumbers around the place and goes Hodor. Hodor, Hodor. Yeah. How how somebody with a Somerset accent ended up in this castle that's populated entirely by people who sound like they're from Northumberland, <laughs> I do not know. But never mind that, eh? Um, uh, but um, yeah. So he, but I really think he acted it really, really well. Like there was something real. There was a real pathos in when he when when Bran kind of came back and spoke to Hodor, mm. Hodor, and 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 you know just the look in his eyes when he was called by his name Willis, but then just went Hodor. Yeah. You know, 
like there was just there was something really actually quite affecting about that kind of moment um shit knows why i mean maybe there's something that's going to happen in the next couple of episodes that we will you will find out about but that's far from being in the, the top of my list of mysteries i want solved in westeros yeah yeah the um it also with with um the sort of theory about it obviously brings the big the big question when you see this is what happened to Hodor to make him mm. lose the power of speech he must have seen something dreadful um yeah. one of the fan theories was that maybe he went to the tower of joy which we'll we'll get to Ooh, in the next well i was going to say that i didn't kind of want to i didn't want to spoil that on us but yeah i mean possibly so was well, he, but I mean, but how could he possibly have been compelled by anybody who was there who wanted him not to testify to what he may or may not have seen there um, to how could he possibly have been compelled not to speak? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm wondering if the, the fact he doesn't speak is, is just the, he sees something so horrific or he's, he has a blow to the head or something like that, which makes him incapable of speech. But um, yeah. whereupon everybody who wants to keep what happens in the Tower of Joy secret is like, well, that was a freebie. Yeah. But let me say, I, I don't think this Terror Joy thing flies at all. Because A, um, I mean, we see a flashback to that in the next episode, and he's not there. Uh, <laughs> and also, the whole the whole story of the Terror Joy is basically Ned selects his five most badass knights yeah. and lords to come with him to go and take back, uh, to, go, to go and get Lyanna Stark. Yeah. Yeah. And I just don't understand why he'd, he'd take Hodor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to have my five most badass warriors and this this stable guy. As well. It's like it's like uh, it's picking the team for football, isn't it? And he just kind of stands up there and he goes, "I will have Sir Nifty with an axe and Sir Unstoppable Sword and Sir Totally Badass with the dual daggers and Sir Surprisingly Effective with a long stick." And Sir punches like a bastard, and the stable boy. What <laughs> exactly? What yeah. we've only got five impressive knights, and the stable boy's nine foot two. <laughs> Fuck off! He's coming with us, all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't think that that's what's happened. But obviously, something's happened um, to 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 make Hodor lose the power of speech. Yeah. Uh, we also have Mira moaning a bit about being stuck around. That that didn't particularly well, that's, interest me. That is very think? justified, isn't it? And I'll say this as well, actually. Could have done with a bit of that in the books. I think like she, the actress who was asked to do that did it really well because in the books she and and um, uh, and Jojen as well because Jojen's still alive underground, isn't he? In the books, um, yeah, yeah. So they just kind of hang out. They've got to this. They're like stranded in the most stranded place in the history of stranding, and they just sit inside this cave and wait for the plot to advance, <laughs> yeah. and they don't say anything about it. Whereas in the in the TV series, at least she goes outside and she goes. Somebody goes, you shouldn't be out here. And she goes, or fucking what? My quality of life will dramatically reduce. Have you noticed what I'm doing with my days right now? There's not even any books to read. You know, I just, I I love that. I love that she's, she actually voices that. Feels far more real to me. Yeah. Um, We we, we move up to the, to the wall again. And it all comes to a head there. So you had the um, Davos and uh, a few sort of, uh, extras, Nightwatch loyalists in this room, and uh, everybody else about to storm it. When suddenly the wildlings burst into the castle, led by uh, Dolores Ed, mm. and um, we got uh, quite like the little sort of nod to the books where one one grabs that guy and just smashes his head against the wall, which is what mm. happens at the end of the uh, uh, Dance with Dragons, uh, where it all kicks off with John gets stabbed. Um, yeah. 
and yeah, there's this basically takeover at the wall as the wildlings invade. Um, yeah. I mean, again, this kind of is what is sort of happening in the books under John's watch, but John yeah. does it on more diplomatically. This is just sort of yeah. a uh, more like a coup. What, what did you make yeah. of all that? Um, well, I thought it was a fairly clanging way of bringing the bringing the story back around to where it needs to be. Yeah, um, it kind of it kind of had to happen, didn't it? That was that. Yeah. So it just does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it was a little bit plot mechanics, but I tell you, I did like the way they continued to build on this kind of composite character, the Tormund character, who is this mm. terrifying Norwegian dude, um, <laughs> uh, and obviously he's like. 12 of the different wildling characters rolled into one really from the books <laughs> yeah. um but i did like the sort of de- like the development of him as a as a sympathetic face because mm-hmm. that means actually that now i'm going to watch this whole storyline that goes on at the wall with him in the middle of it and instead of just waiting for him to die which i was because he's a wildling and eventually death um i quite like the sort of growing bromance even in death between him and john snow where he's like you killed yeah. snow i'm <laughs> badass and ginger I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> you killed my boy. My you best kill- boy. <laughs> you killed my best boy. You know what we call that in Norway? We call that lights out time. <laughs> it's time for me to regulate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not many characters in this book to whom the verb to regulate is appropriate to describe their actions, but this bloke is definitely one of them. <laughs> um, we just we shoot back down to King's Landing. as this guy who's... <laughs> He's like giving it the big one in the in the pub. Oh, fucking hell! Jeez, this was another example of the way that the TV series really do love just to be. And I realise I say this as somebody that drops about nineteen thousand f bombs every week, but they do love a bit of vulgarity, don't they? They'll just they'll just go there. Um, yeah. For quite a long time. And I'm sitting there, honestly, in scenes like this, I'm sitting there thinking, I know you wanted to have fun with the script. Like, I know this is a fun little monologue, but at the same time, you cut out all of the character development of characters <laughs> X through Z for this reason. Okay, cool. <laughs> this character is going to die next. He's going to say some really entertainingly vulgar things because this is not television. This is HBO. You know? <laughs> like, they have to prove that they're still, they're still badass. It's like, there's a little bit, they're trying a little bit hard. They're the kid who got lots of attention for being eloquently good at swearing when they were 14, who's still <laughs> doing it at 18. And everybody's like, could you say something else? Please, just something interesting, just not just the shock value. Oh, just still the shock value is at HBO. All right, cool. Carry on. <laughs> I got a bit. I I really enjoyed this. And, um... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think I've made my feelings clear, Matt. You're a Bulgarian and an adolescent at that. Because I like how the build up it builds, builds, and then there's a the sort of payoff where he sort of wanders off to the alley, and that uh, the the mountain that's been brought back from the dead. Or Sir Robert, whichever you want to call him, wanders yeah. along and just like pfft, squashes his head against the wall. <laughs> it's cold, isn't it? That's, and that's the second time in that TV series that they decided to show accurately somebody's brains being bashed out against a wall. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah. There was that, and then there was the bit of the wall before where the giant runs in and smashes somebody's head against the wall. Yeah, and it's like, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny as well, immediately before he does that, you could or you can very clearly hear the guy peeing on the uh, on on Sir Robert Strong's shoes as well. Yeah, that. <laughs> it was, it was I, was, I was listening to another podcast. Um, it was the Game of Thrones podcast, the Bald Move one, yeah. and the, that guy was saying that he like putting forward the theory that. The, the the mountain wasn't actually going to kill him until that happened. So he's like, he's walked over to go, hey man, I really didn't appreciate you speaking about the queen like that. 
Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> right. Yeah, you really don't want to be the guy who triggers the mountain to get angry, do you? Um, by the way, actually, on that Robert Strong um, versus Gregor Clegane thing, um, yeah. there's a scene in the third episode, which I'm going to want to talk about, because I think it contains one of the most, the best fan references in the history of television. Yeah. But um, where he's referred to as, um, as, Sir, uh, as Clegane. So I don't yeah. think they're doing the Robert Strong thing at all in the TV series. I think they're like, yeah, that's that's transparently obvious who and what he is. Yeah. Fine. You know, I think they've just they've decided not to pursue it, which I, I actually respect. Yeah, it makes sense for the TV. Does it? It's like um, the same thing they did with Sebariston. They didn't bother with this. I'm uh, Arsden Whitebeard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, are you really? Because you look yeah. a lot like the bloke. That, you can't do it when when you're showing the guy's face. It's clearer. And when you have a character who is nine foot tall, everybody <laughs> knows who he is, even if you hadn't already done the zombie setup scene. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, yeah. So yeah, they're just basically gonna say this is what's happened. It still leaves the problem, I think, because this they're having the books as well where these people in king's landing who find it hard to believe that anything supernatural exists north of the wall um see a guy brought back from the dead as a massive hulking zombie yeah and they were like mm, okay uh, oh, i guess that's that possible. happened yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> i now well, accept that as part of my universe without freaking out in the slightest yeah although i do love that scene with um here where the lannister guards turn up to say to cersei look you can't go to the funeral and like the the mountains next to her, sort of like what? And they sort of they're they're basically really frightened. But like, look, we've got to do this. And thinking, God, he, he could actually probably kill all of us in the minute. Yeah, and I quite like that tension, and it made me feel a bit like you know, yeah, these um yeah. these guards are just sort of it's a classic. Look, I got to do this job. I don't want to make it any yeah. harder than than it absolutely has to be. So yeah. um, look, can we just be cool about it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, very true. And knowing who they're dealing with as well, knowing they're dealing with Cersei, who is a woman who, let us say, knows how to keep a grudge. Yeah, yeah. I did sort of love the sort of, like, workman-like, look, I've got a job to do, all right, kind yeah. of thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just that expression of the uh, mountains, like, eyes as well as, like, looking at them like, what? I just, what? I get... <laughs> I just imagine a, a series of different like people just doing my job people like coming across him like give, trying to give like him a parking ticket or something like, yeah, oh, no. just looks, like, yeah that look on his face was the sort of facial expression or like eye shape equivalent of that moment in the pub where somebody's had a few too many and is playing pool and knocks over the pint glass of the resident psycho and there's just a moment where he bends down and picks it up and that tapping noise when it gets put down on the table which says as clearly as a klaxon somebody's going to get punched it was yeah. that moment but with the eyes yeah 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 <laughs> um we uh we move out to um oh there's that bit with uh tom and and jamie and the the high sparrow as well over in the great sept which mm. uh is quite i think we'll, we'll talk a bit more about high sparrow at the sort of uh, the next episode, so we'll leave that yeah. for now. Yeah. Um, we move back to Marine, and uh, we see Tyrion the Dragon Tamer. Tyrion makes an altogether, <laughs> an altogether <laughs> more successful attempt at going down to say hello to these dragons than poor Quentin ever did. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of this? So he, he succeeds in um, in effectively releasing them. So we get to the 
the same point in the books where the dragons are, if not, I mean, in the books, the dragons are free and roaming around, but they've basically been let loose by Tyrion yeah. uh, without um, burning anyone to a crisp. Yeah, well, so first of all, thank God for that, because if they'd have had Tyrion have the same experience here as Quentin, I think I would have thrown the telly across the country. Do you think there was um, a, did you think there was a genuine chance of that happening when he starts wandering down? Because I oh, kind of thought, oh. Yeah, oh. well, I was like, knowing what happens in the books, I was like, you're not going to, really? Are you going to? Like, it was actually one of those moments where I wasn't drawn in with a sense of dread, like at the Red Wedding, where I was like, kind of, oh, for fuck's sake, guys, seriously, <laughs> you're not going to, are you? And they, to their credit, they did not. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know, because it was believable in the books, because Quentin was a, a well-meaning idiot with a head full of delusions of grandeur and a profound need to prove to everybody that he's kingly and brave mm. and manly-like, and Tyrion has no such need. So I don't really understand why this was the thing they did, to be honest. Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, there is a reason, and I think the... the that like Peter Dinklage did a, a really as, as good a job as he possibly could of selling. Oh shit! It. Yes, I mean, yeah. Um, don't take anything away from him in that performance. It was great. Sorry. Yeah, I think, but I think it, it could have probably done with just a couple more scenes, or probably series ago or more or further back. Yeah. Um, just lay um, layering on this um, connection between Tyrion and dragons. Um, he yeah. talks. About, he talks about it here, where he says, "You know, ever since I was little, I talked about I, I, I wish for a dragon, you know, and here you are, and all this." And you yeah. can, I think, you get more of an impression in the books that um, Tyrion, more than any other character, is obsessed with these things. And yeah. this is like, um, it's almost. It, it made me think a little bit, rather strangely, of the in the Jurassic Park book at the end, where Alan Grant just goes into this. He ends up like going into the raptor nest because he's just so curious. Because this is what he's been waiting to do his entire life, yeah. and it kind of feels like that with Tyrion. He's just. He's yeah. finally gets to come across these dragons, and he he know he's he's read so much about them. He kind of thinks he knows what he's doing as much yeah. as anyone can, and he just thinks, you know what, this is you know, yeah, this is what life's about. Let's go give it a go. Yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It could have done, done with something to make you feel that connection before this scene, though, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I agree with that, and. I wouldn't at all be surprised if I tur- if it turned out that if I went back and watched all the early episodes of Game of Thrones, which, let's be honest, I'm not going to do, doing that would take <laughs> an entire working week and would probably leave me in a kind of psychopathic trance at the end of it. Um, but but if I did, I, I'm willing to believe that at some point there may have been a shot of Tyrion looking at a book with a page showing a dragon. Uh, you know, that feels like the kind of thing they, they might have done. But yeah, I feel like I would have liked it to be better set up than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sharpen your axe, um, yeah. because we're going to go through a... We're going to have a character cull now um, over the next few pages. <laughs> uh, starting with... Oh, actually, before we get to that, um, we haven't. I didn't mention this in the first episode, um, but it's kind of the same thing across two. Arya um, is in Bravos, just getting beaten oh, up Oh, jeez, yeah. Oh, um, man, I'm glad you only did that in one episode, because yeah. the TV series did it at great, exhaustive fucking... Le- with everything yeah. with Arya, why do you have to spend ten minutes showing her being dicked all over by her current social environment? We get it! We get yeah. it! She's working for horrible people, and for some unknown reason, she's happy with that. Yeah. Bully for her. Yeah, if... if- <laughs> If this was a Super Nintendo game, it'd be something. It'd be Arya Beatdown Party '99, wouldn't it? Just like some beat 'em up game. <laughs> Knock about this poor kid. <laughs> that would be the worst fighting game in the universe. Can you imagine? The screen shows absolutely nothing, and just occasionally you get hit and it flashes red. That's it. 
<laughs> yeah. first person first person fighter where you can't see anything yeah so we'll come back to Arya in the next episode I suppose because there's not much to say at the moment is this she's just having a miserable time of it getting beaten up yeah um, we go to the north and Roos Bolton uh, well well um, so he's killed by Ramsay um, yeah. after after talking about how oh basically he's uh, his wife, uh, Fat Walder, um, who, <laughs> a bit harsh, but you, that yeah, was a yeah, a bit. Can we say not our name for her? Not our name <laughs> yeah. for her. Yeah. You, 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 you be you, darling. You do you, right? Yeah. However, yeah. by other characters, she is known. Yeah. So Fat Walder and and her and obviously Roos's son are also killed here. But that's the kind of that's what sets Ramsay off. Is that um, Roos's son is born, so Ramsay thinks right. Got to take matters into my own hands. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you make of this? Roos, Roos Bolton killed by Ramsay, and, and well, I mean, this hasn't happened in the books. It couldn't happen to a nicer son of a bitch, could it? But <laughs> at the same time, um, uh, well, hmm. well, this was interesting because it is good. Like, it moves the plot forward in a fairly significant way. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, uh, and there were there were elements of this scene which were really, really good, tense. Kind of, you know, they're talking about it and. Roose Bolton is this completely merciless bastard, but then so is his bastard. Um, and um, so it was really tense. But then there was a moment where, like, he kind of, when they went in for the embrace, when it was like, congratulations, father, embrace. And I was like, somebody's dying at the end of this hug. Yeah. And uh, did you think that as well? Was that, was that like, you, you look at the, there's something about the way it was staged and the fact that it's taking place in Game of Thrones. There wasn't any tension in it for me. There was just like a, uh, yeah, somebody's going to die here. Oh, because well, they always do. Yeah. Right? Well, I thought, I thought kind of the, I was waiting for the hug. I thought, oh, what's going to, and then, then you hear the stab. Yeah. And I, I thought it was really great the way it was shot because you, for, a, for a few seconds, you didn't know who'd killed who because it could have mm. just as easily been Roos killing Ramsay. Because uh, he says like you'll always be my firstborn, and that would be that would be almost be a line for him to kill Ramsay on, and that was yeah. almost what I was semi expecting. I thought he's going to kill Ramsay here, yeah. and then yeah, suddenly he realises it's Roos. Um, yeah, I don't. The problem I had with it, I, I find it hard to believe how Ramsay could get to Roos Bolton like that though, because he's, yeah. he's he comes across as such a um, <clears throat> strategically. A uh, brilliant guy, Bolton, for all his, all the sort of think dreadful things about him, and it's it seems to, yeah. the series seems to want to give the impression that Ramsay had got Carstark on side, and yeah. you know had managed to engineer some kind of mutiny generally, yeah. and this was the yeah. final bit of it. Yeah. I just wonder. I just thought I didn't sit right that that would be something that could happen yeah. under Bolton's yeah. nose without him knowing about it. Yeah, because Bolton's too canny an operator, isn't he? And and it's also part of the kind of magic force field of plot invulnerability that exists around Ramsay because he's such mm. a bastard, yeah. um, which which has always irritated me actually because as a character piece it it's not it doesn't feel right to me at all. I'm just like the one thing I know for certain is that he's not going to die because he's a horrible character and I don't like being around him. Mm. And that for me is just as just as big a crime against your plot as it would be to have a character who's so good they can never die. Hmm. Um, you know, which is one of the one of the problems that you have in, in much kind of popular fiction and one of the one of the things which Game of Thrones built its reputation around overturning. There's no character who's too big to be killed. But actually hmm. now I think Ramsey's a great example of how they swung the other way. 
I felt no tension in that scene at all. I know they kept it on. I know it was supposed to be ambiguous. And for a second, perhaps there was a flicker of, mm, but by the end of it, I knew for certain that it was going to be Ramsey because mm. Ramsey always stays alive. And that mm. was only actually for me, that was only reinforced by the fact that they then went and took five extremely disturbing, porny minutes over having a woman and a baby eaten alive by dogs. Yeah, I great. get it. I fucking get it. Ramsey's a horrible person. You've shown me that at exhaustive fucking length, and I do not understand why you think it's important for that to be reinforced to me. It doesn't tell me anything more about the character. It doesn't tell me anything more about the world. It doesn't tell me anything more about the plot. It's mm. just porny, and it's just pointless. And so and so, the, the whole tension of the whole Ramsey storyline at this point is like, oh, for fuck's sake. I mean, of course it's not going to be all right. Of course it's going to go badly. It's fucking Ramsey Snow. Of course he's going to stay alive. And there's mm. just as little tension in that as there is in somebody pretending that they're going to kill Tony Stark in a fucking Marvel, Marvel film. Mm. I know they're not going to kill him. It's Robert Downey Jr. He's the star. He's not going to get killed. I know they're not going to kill Ramsey Snow. He's the way they justify two-thirds of the horrendous stuff they put on screen, which seems to be something they really enjoy doing. Mm. external to the demands of the plot. I've no objection to any amount of horrible stuff in service to plot and character development, but they just, at this point, they've kind of just let it go completely. And I've yeah. been, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, th- I thought it was a shame because I thought it would have been a more interesting story if they had killed Ramsey here rather than Roos because yeah. it's more of a challenge. And I think, because, I think, you see why they do it because I think they just want, they want to make, uh, the, the North's in, it's in a bit of a, sort of tenuous position now but you feel that Roose Bolton has a decent shot at sort of holding on because he's so tactically and strategically clever and yeah. Ramsey isn't and he's just some hothead that's going to charge up to the wall now and, and try and kill everyone up there but um, because of that that's why it made it so hard to believe that Ramsey's been able to strategically manoeuvre himself to a position where he can do this um, yeah. I mean I, I suppose from Roose's point of Roose Bolton's point of view it's a uh, it's kind of believable because he must think, you know, in the past, in the books in the past, Ramsey's killed one of his firstborn son, one of his uh, yeah. legitimate children. Yeah. Um, and Bolton's probably thinking that maybe he does that this time. And yeah. he kind of lets, it's kind of like almost anything goes below Bolton, isn't it? As long as you don't come at him. Yeah. And because he's such a pragmatist, Bolton, he yeah. he can't imagine his son doing something so clearly against his own self-interest as killing his dad because yeah. it's 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 so clearly a a disastrous move this but um yeah yeah, yeah. i i i thought it was a bit of a shame because i think it would have been a more interesting story to see oh how are they going to bring down Roose Bolton because he's he's like Tywin Lannister is a genuinely um like yeah. dangerous I, I don't think Ramsay Snow Ramsay Snow's monstrous but he's yeah. not dangerous in the same way because he's stupid yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he just he he all he does is take pleasure in in killing people. And and this is the thing that's like that really troubles me is that they seem to be trying to set him up as a sort of potentate in the north as mm. the kind of guy that you look at and you're like he's a serious operator. And he's not. He is mm. an adolescent child with a knife that nobody's ever said no to. And mm. while that might be interesting in a certain kind of I mean, you know, American Psycho, interesting film, character basically the same, you know, completely mm. unhinged, very very violent, horrible, etc. Um you know, that's that's a satire on a society and Ramsey isn't a satire on a society. He's just a character that does fucked mm. up stuff. Mm. And that's not mm. not nearly as interesting. Um, I, uh, having said that, I do I, I do say will say one thing. I do really like the parallel of um, characters like Roose Bolton and Tywin Lannister being killed by their sons 
Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They're, so, they're so um adept at dealing with any threats from outside the family, but they don't realize the threat from within their own family, which I thought was yeah. very interesting. Yes, that's very very true, and um and. I think that's an interesting little themic moment, which I'm, I'm like, kind of happy. I'm happy mm. exists. I think that's cool. Yeah. Speaking of threats from within the family, so um, Balon Greyjoy, who we haven't seen for I don't know a couple of seasons in the uh, yeah in the yeah, series to to the point where I had to remind myself which of the many Greyjoys he was because in the <laughs> books in the books he died a book ago. He died a long time ago in the books, and yeah. so and so I'm like in this with this whole sequence, I was like, is that is he? Is he the damp hair? Is he Euron? <laughs> is he Victorian? Is he yeah. some weird mashup of all three of? Oh, it's Balon! All right, rewind, flip, reverse that. Yeah. Uh, where, where's me? Where's me? Quick plot summary from book I read a year ago. You know? <laughs> yeah, so it's weird because I actually think it might even be further. It might even be Storm of Swords, or possibly even Clash of Kings, Clash of when, Kings. Ba- when Balon really? Greyjoy dies. Yeah, because he's um. He's he dies basically when Stannis is still on Dragonstone doing that weird stuff with the slugs. Do you know where yeah. the leeches? Where they? Oh um, yeah. And he dies. And another plot line which came to nothing, by the way. Yeah, so, but I mean, yes, yeah, so that was ages ago. So yeah, this is a real callback. But um, in the in the books, what we know is he fell off a bridge in a storm. And there's there's a talk of it. It might have been dodgy, but we don't know for sure. In here, in the series at least, uh, we see that it's it's his. Well, we know, I suppose, by piecing the book and the series together, you know that this guy is Euron Greyjoy. Although mm. he isn't actually named in the series. Um, so we we'll have to wait. And, but um, I will say, I did like how this scene panned out. I liked the introduction to this guy. Um, I liked how it's on this really rickety, clearly like dangerous bridge. And Balon's sort of um, making his way slowly across by clinging onto the side. And then when he sees his brother... Mm. just standing there um, to sort of show his own. To sort of, it's almost like a competition where he stops holding on to the side then. And um, and the way he actually is killed where he sort of tries to stab his brother and then his brother throws him off the uh, off the top. I just thought it was very... It was very, very true to Balon Greyjoy's character, this, the way he the way he gets killed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very true. I like, I like. I mean, I saw a, I saw a thing online um, where he was like, uh, where somebody was like, well, you know, what happens if you go on a rickety bridge facing somebody you can't recognize in the dark in the rain on? And of course, that's completely <laughs> true. It's a stupid thing to do, but it was completely in in line with what it takes to be king on Pike, yeah, and yeah. um, and particularly what Balon Greyjoy is like. Of course, he's going to walk out in the middle and go, "I'm the fucking king. Move out of the way." Yeah, even yeah. though he's clearly too frail to stand in the middle of the thing, and he's yeah. grasping onto the side, and the wind's blowing, and you're like, "Well, you're going to die." But for some reason, this was like, "Oh yeah, okay, he's going to die," rather than, "Oh, for fuck's sake, he's going to die," which is how I felt about many of the deaths. Yeah, yeah. The the way the Iron Islands works, there's nothing else he could really do here, is he? Because if he yeah, if if he exactly. turns around, if he turns around and goes for help, he doesn't die tonight. But because of that weakness, he dies within the next few days anyway. Yeah, in his bed. So yeah. you might as well get it over with there. You know, you can't back down. Exactly. So yeah, yeah I thought that was I thought it was great because it was keeping with his character, keeping with the whole culture of this uh, island, and yeah. I think um, 
I think that's when Game of Thrones really works when it really it really sort of shows the um, the cultures that they make up in these very individual houses and very individual um, parts of the the world and stays yeah. true to them and that's when I think it really yeah. hits its stride. Yes, I mean, and that's uh, yeah, that's one of the real strengths of the series, isn't it? When it when it tries to do that and shows these cultures instead of just going, death is a constant everywhere, sex is a constant everywhere, let's get on with it. Um, yeah. you know unleash the dragons rather than that where it goes here's what it looks like when loads of different cultures collide yeah and that's very uh, interesting to me yeah and i think that's part of the problem why it's kind of gone wrong in dawn as well because they started yeah. so it's, it's a very like rich culture that one because in the books yeah. it's this mixture of yeah you have these hothead they, they've got this reputation of being hotheads yeah um and but but also it's it's married with this um you know, much it almost seems more cultured and, and enlightened with how they look after children over there, and they um they do things a bit differently. And I, that was really they did that really well early on when you had Oberyn talking about you know on the one hand is is stabbing people in whorehouses and getting into fights he doesn't need to because he's, he's that's what he's like. And on the other hand, he's saying things to Tyrion and Cersei like you know we, we don't hurt little girls in Dawn and all yeah. this. Um, yeah. And they seem to have just jettisoned that second part now and said, no, they're just a sort of crazy hotheads now. That's what Dawn is. And I think that's a bit of a shame. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it was, it's, I understand why for the purposes of plot, if it wasn't working, but I think the reason it wasn't working is that you took a bad swing to start with. And mm. it was a great opportunity to do something interesting with like multi, multiple cultures, plural cultures, and, mm. you know, play with it a bit of it. And they didn't, you know, mm. fair enough. Uh, the uh, the final bit, as uh, as you well know, uh, the end of this episode is uh, John back Ooh. from the dead. So uh, Melisandre does uh, some freaky stuff to try and bring him back. I'm not even sure she knows what she's doing. Um, mm. She has a go, thinks, oh, it's not worked. Everyone wanders off, and then John wakes up and he's yeah. back. Yeah, and I, yeah, uh, and I, months of speculation is confirmed. Yes. Yeah. It, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. So it was kind of like even I couldn't avoid this speculation, so I wasn't super surprised when it happened. Hmm. Um, but uh, I really like this scene. Like I said before, that Melisandre's crisis of faith made her just, you know, an order of magnitude more interesting to me. Hmm. Um, and and particularly, I thought that was really brought out beautifully in this scene because she does all of her sprinkle shit in the air and ceremonial nonsense and all of her god herding stuff and all of her, you know, you're going to do what I'm getting you to do because incantations and all of that stuff. And it's not until she has a personal moment where she just goes, please, hmm. you know, where she actually as a person asks and it's all about that personal moment rather than, you know, I, I incantate control the divine sort of mm. thing um, mm. using my rituals until it becomes this personal moment and then it happens and again I thought that was very interesting and very um, a very interesting take on the experience of faith um, which I'm really not used to seeing in mainstream entertainment so I really liked it yeah and I liked again the, the, the parallel here between her and Thoros where he said back in the earlier series and earlier the books you know when he did the same sort of prayer over, uh, what was he called? The uh, Eric Dondarrion. Dondarrion, yeah, and uh, and he said he did. He, he wasn't sort of expecting anything to happen. It was just something he did, and actually, he didn't even believe in it anymore. It was yeah. just something he did, 
And that's when this happened. And it seems that Melisandre has almost got to that same point. She does almost doesn't believe this stuff herself anymore. And that's when, yeah, yeah, this has happened again, which is very interesting. It is really interesting. And I hope it does something really interesting to her character. I mean, I have to say, I'm not too encouraged by the fact that the thing that happened directly after this seems to have been that it's just brought her back into her old power games instantly. Hmm. She's like brought to this, feels like she was previously, she was brought to this like moment of crisis and self-examination and uncertainty and oh maybe more humility is required of me here and then Jon Snow comes back from the dead and she gets right back on the horse of it was him I was wrong it was not Stannis fuck Stannis and his (laughs) rapidly freezing and presumably soon reanimating corpse fuck it here we go now he is the king who is coming back Mm. um and I really like that and actually you know what in that little flight of fancy, I've just thought of something which I want to come back to. But let's finish okay. this scene before I say it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's pretty much that's pretty much all I wanted to say about that scene. We're gonna we're gonna sort of just jump over now into um, episode three because we sort of we go back to the wall and John's there Bef- again. So, so you 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 go. So here is a thing. <laughs> go on. In the TV series, in the in the books, as far as we can tell, like we said last week with the preview chapter from the winds of winter as far as we can tell actually stannis is still alive question mark yeah um so maybe this isn't the way the books and the the whole plot is going to go but right now here is what has happened in the tv series a massive battle has taken place in the frozen north right right outside of winterfell and i've got 20 quid says nobody burned all of those bodies Mm. Hmm. leading us to the possibility hmm, that perhaps (laughs) Perhaps, hmm, zombie Stannis? Anyone? <laughs> I mean, because if the White Walkers do mm. eventually come through the wall, which is clearly what's going to happen at the end of this series, by the way, yeah. clearly the, the White Walkers are going to come down through the wall and there's going to be some big battle in the north. Hence the importance of Winterfell. Hence who is the Warden of the North mattering. Hence, 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 hence. Right? All of that. Yeah. Um, if nobody's burned Stannis's army, then they'll be reanimated. As well, this whites. Is, this is an interesting point. I'm not sure because um, it depends whether the the White Walkers can just raise people like bodies from the dead as some kind of power, or whether you have to have been killed by like it's almost like a zombie has to been killed by a White Walker or by one of the Whites yeah. to be turned into another White. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's going to be the case. Unless you're killed by a White, you don't turn into one. No, because otherwise, why is, why is it such a massive thing that people are desperate to do whenever somebody dies at Castle Black that they should be burned? That's a good point, yeah. Jon Snow yeah. wasn't killed by whites, but they're still like, we got to burn this motherfucker before burn nightfall. And they burn everybody because, you know, because that's that's what they do and that's how that's how the zombies come. But isn't, um, that, isn't, isn't, that be, isn't that because they don't know? Because I can't think of an example where someone hasn't been killed by a white and has come back as a, as a white walker or as a zombie. Uh... That's an interesting point. Um, oh, uh, in the TV series, not in the books, but in the TV series, Craster, Craster's son gets left out in the middle of nowhere and turned into a zombie baby, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, but that's not the same thing. Um, I don't know. But you would, th- I mean, I'm kind of minded to say that the, the wildlings know a lot about the White Walkers, don't they? And they know yeah. a lot, they know a lot about how to, about what happens and you know because they deal with them all the time and that the whole thing about the the night's watch interaction with the 
uh, with the wildlings has been the Night's mm. Watch going, of course there's no such thing as White Walkers, and the wildlings going, yes, there fucking is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they seem to know quite a lot about them, and they burn everybody. So, yeah. you know, I'm minded to say that I think the balance of whatever is, is more on the side of... Um, more on the side of there being white walkers sort of thing hmm. um uh but i don't know but i mean but how's how's about that for an originally developed fan theory from i like the king, idea from yeah. the king of the, the seals to um stannis uh stannis the zombie but what if as a result of that melisandra has another flip-flop moment and goes oh he's still alive is he oh made out of ice oh maybe that was god telling me to flip over maybe the marriage of heaven and hell maybe all is one one is all maybe there's no such thing as good and evil maybe i'll just have a fight here stannis here we go son <laughs> freeze me up <laughs> Bit of a knows? Link, admittedly but still who knows but yeah i'd say um it's up in the air at the moment that but until we see um somebody not killed by a, a white turn into a a white. I think they've still got an out there if they want to limit the power of the White Walkers a little bit. Because yeah, because it could be if that's the if they can bring anyone back, they just need to wander over to any sort of graveyard, and they've got another you know a few thousand followers as well. So it's got that would be a that would be pretty much game over surely if they can do that. But we'll, we'll see. <laughs> be a um, sight to see, wouldn't it? Yeah. So yeah, so so John at uh, the start of this episode, John recovers, and he goes down to have a chat. Says, "Yo, what's going on?" Um, yeah, a, a bit of a chat. <laughs> <laughs> Steps out into the middle of this incipient war, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's an interesting thing with Melisandre actually, where she asks him, "What did you see on the other side?" And he says, yeah. "Nothing." Uh, yeah. Which is what which is what Dundarian said, but this is interesting. Not so, not so much because of the sort of the bleakness of it, but also um, there was this theory going around that um, John, when he dies, because in the books the last thing he says is ghost, and yeah. the idea is that John, when he dies, actually walks into ghost, yeah, um, and then he's almost like kept. He just basically waits inside Ghost until he, come, yeah, until he comes back to life and then he comes back again. But obviously that can't have happened because he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember sort of like seeing himself and like scratching at the door as a as a dialogue or anything. He remembers mm. nothing. So it yeah. suggests that that theory anyway we can be put to bed. Um, yeah, 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 very much. Although, um, yeah, he definitely said it in that kind of like horrifying kind of a way didn't he like that that horrified kind of existential nothingness kind of a way mm. um so uh yeah i i really liked this though and i was surprised how much i liked this scene and the kind of the, the interactions when he when he comes back because yeah. first of all you've got i i love the matter of fact down to earthness of um of uh uh the onion knight in oh, this Davos, scene. yeah, of Davos, yeah, where where he just he, like he goes into this kind of, which is very familiar to me, being English, um, this kind of very matter of fact. Here you go, son. It's going to be all right. Come on, have a sit down. Come on. <laughs> like he, he all but gets him a cup of tea, not because he knows what's going on, but just because he's fundamentally concerned with the guy's well being and with kind of, you know, ensuring he's okay. And I loved that. Mm. I just thought that was that was really just a really sort of lovely scene. Um, uh, I love Melisandre's response. Um, I also, I also love the, um, uh, the the kind of 
the fact that he's a character who's come back from the dead and all the other characters, as we've, we've joked about this, obviously, that there are 9,000 different types of zombie in a, this, this particular story universe. But um, he's, um, he's come back and he's still himself. And mm. so he's kind of talking across that divide in a way that's far more compelling because it's not just like, oh, look, zombies, freaky shit. It's, look, this character has come back from the dead and has been in some way changed by it, mm. you know? And I thought they did that really well when he looks down at himself and sort of touches the wounds where he's been stabbed, which are all yeah. still completely open. You know, yeah. coming back from the dead hasn't fixed any of that stuff. Yeah. Um and 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 so and it it was this really amazing thing of like oh yeah like what's going to happen now because this is completely he's he's operating in a place which is completely weird mm. for for a character there's no precedent for this whatsoever that he would come back um and and of course at the end of this episode we see what he does with that and i think it's very appropriate and really dramatic yeah i like the moment with ed as well with obviously the closest person he's, he is to uh the, yeah. the, his closest friend's Ed now at the wall where like they sort of embrace and he looks at, Ed looks at him and is like well your eyes are still brown <laughs> like, yeah. is, it, is it still you in there I thought it was really nice uh, the way yeah. that was put oh he was brilliant wasn't it like that that's just a beautiful little incredibly well sketched character moment mm. and there was another one with um with Tormund wasn't there where he comes out <laughs> and goes and there's just that that great the delivery of that line is just a complete masterpiece in that accent <laughs> they think you're a god yeah what do you think i am i don't know but you're not a god i saw you and no god has a pecker that small (laughs) (laughs) i just there's just something so true about that interaction about the friendship that's evident in that interaction which i just completely loved absolutely amazing uh, we move on to another member of the Night's Watch, Sam, on a boat with Gilly. Not a lot happens, really. He he says he's going to send her over to his uh, his place up at the uh, Horn Hill, I think it's called. <laughs> the, horn, um, the Horn Hill, hill yeah. shaped like a horn. Mm. Uh, just uh, as he goes on to Old Town, and he mm. he's getting seasick as well. Not a great deal to say there, but probably useful useful scene. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, then we move on to my favourite scene so far. It's the flashback to the Tower of Joy, um, <laughs> and oh my goodness! I mean, this is my favourite scene from my favourite passage in the series. It's in like Game of Thrones one where Ned remembers it, and it just seems yeah. like like the, the the sort of the the top fight card, you know, Royal Rumble <laughs> to end all Royal Rumbles. You're playing top trumps with scenes from yeah. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Shit, yeah. we should make that. We should make it uh, make it some sort of donation incentive for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got you got um six of the uh, hand picked best fighters in the north, uh yeah. three uh of the best Kingsguard, they all go in and two guys walk out. <laughs> it's like <laughs> that is awesome. Let's get ready to rumble <laughs> Yeah. And even though they cut the number of Kingsguard from three down to two yeah. Um, it was still, I think, entirely lived up to the hype, especially the uh, the Saratha Dane guy fight. I, mean, I know oh, a, p- a few a people have ki- a few people have kicked off because um, he fought with two swords, and he's in the books he has this one really impressive sword. But I just thought, yeah. I thought the way it was staged, the um, the build yeah. up to it, the exchange yeah. of conversation, the the feeling that. You know, you can probably. It almost, if it felt like almost, if anyone was the bad, was the villains in this. It was the Northmen. It felt yeah. like these two guys were the heroes, 
And then, yeah, yeah the, the way the fighting was staged, I just loved this from start to finish. What do you think? I, I couldn't agree with you more. I loved it. And I, I mean, I felt like the guy they had doing Ned Stark was a bit wooden. Yeah. But actually, and he kind of was, but at the same time, actually, I think he was just accurately playing what a young lad who's somehow still alive at the end of a war he started with his mates Hmm. would be like i don't think he was good at that point at acting out leadership i don't think he was good at grandstanding so Hmm. you know he gets this great line you know now it begins but i mean and he does it in a whole accent as well by the way did you notice that do you notice that somehow between the ages of 25 and 45 (laughs) ned stark lost a whole accent and gained a sheffield one that's 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 one for the english people in our audience but that was is absolutely true so what he actually says is no now it ends yeah Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which it was great but anyway um so i actually thought that was true to the character um and i think anybody who's complaining about sir arthur dane fighting with two swords is just complaining about entirely the wrong thing if he can fight with two swords in what way does that make him less of a badass to you <laughs> in what way is that inappropriate to the character jeez yeah. um and I think finally, you are absolutely right. You completely understand why Sir Arthur Dane goes into the fight. And you understand that the Northmen are the bad guys throughout. And you see that particularly with, um, with Bran. Because mm. Bran, Bran is the kind of commentator on the scene. Um, you know, says, you know, I've heard this story a thousand times. And then at the actual, at the climax of the fight, um, he's like, he got stabbed in the back. Yeah. You know, and he's presented with the kind of failure of his father's heroism. Mm. Um, and you know, the kind of inglory of wars like this. And I have a feeling that's going to become a very important character moment for him as he mm. kind of realizes that there's no such thing as a glorious victory. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like that's a really, really big moment for him, but you're right. In, in all the ways it was staged, set, choreographed, scripted, acted, and the way, all the way it just fell out on screen was just amazing. Just great. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought the the, the the first Kingsguard guy, like he, he does this great sort of first... I think it was important that like the Kingsguard got a killing before he got killed as well, because he's supposed to be a, this also this like total badass guy. But mm. um, that was... It was almost made for the promo picture the way, because he kills him and like screams, and it's been the... Um, like, as he's killing him, and it's been the sort of promo picture for the... Uh, that, that's been going around that, and that, that was like, perfectly done. And then I think the... Um, the two I've never seen anyone actually fight with two swords like that before. I thought it was amazing. But I thought the thing mm. that worked well with the way the actual fight was staged is that when it goes it goes down to sort of it ends up with like that four on one and he's sort of standing in the middle just sort of holding his swords like keeping him at bay. And then the way they actually he sort of cuts his way out of there. Yeah. It's it's really it was really the thing that pisses me off a lot of time when you see like especially sort of medieval style fights, is it's it's not realistic because so many people are just standing around watching. It's almost like the ninja thing where like 20 ninjas appear and like attack one guy and like yeah. 19 of them stand and watch while like one guy attacks yeah. and they're all yeah. sort of waiting. And it felt like at every moment in that fight, they're all trying to yeah. land, sort of lay a glove on him and land a blow, but they just yeah. can't because he's so fast and his footwork's yeah. so good. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Really brilliant. I, I agree with you that. And, and that I think that this is why I think I responded to this as a fight scene more than I think I've responded almost to any other fight scene I can think mm. of. Um, actually, shit, this may be the most impressive fight scene I've ever seen. Now I think about <laughs> it. Um, just, just because for that precise reason that it's all these characters playing off against each other and it's all very dramatic. And, um, 
it feels real. It feels like this is what would happen if you had this unbelievably good guy fighting five guys and somehow winning. Mm. Um, yeah, brilliant. Just yeah. completely fantastic. And then uh, at the end of it, so yeah, as you say, he gets uh, stabbed in the back from the... Uh, so Arthur Dane gets killed by uh, Helen Reed. That's kind of how I thought it must have gone down when the way it's remembered, actually. Um, yeah. Sort of a last minute sort of saving thing there. And then yeah. Ned makes his way up to the tower where we assume his sister is. He hears a screaming. And there's yeah. this weird moment which we've we've I think we've seen in the we've read in the books where Bran shouts and Ned looks round. And I remember yeah. this happens. I'm not sure if it happened in the in the series as well. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe I'm just sort of getting mixed up. But there's a bit where um I know in the books where Ned's sort of sitting under the tree in the godswood in Winterfell, like cleaning yeah. his sword, yeah. and yeah. Bran shouts him and he sort of looks up. And then yeah. carries on, yeah. um, which is quite interesting. Yeah, well, and in the books, it becomes an even bigger moment. For, obviously, it doesn't shape what Ned does, but in the books, it shapes what Theon does. Because Theon mm. says, I heard the gods speak to me in the godwood. Yeah. They said Theon. And so I think that's actually going to really change. That has changed the way he thinks, because then he, after that, he always thinks, Theon, Theon, my name is Theon. I must remember my name, you know, and it overturns all of this reek shit. Mm. Yeah. Um. So... But that happened in real time, didn't it? So there is a thing about going back into the past and changing it um, mm. here, uh, which I think, by the way, if you're going to have a free will predestination conversation about going back into the past and changing the past, and mm. you need somebody to play the guide, the guy <laughs> you need to hire for that is flipping Max von Sydow. That's the guy you need to hire. And it's so good that they went and actually got the bloke who was literally in the seventh seal and played <laughs> death at chess. They got that guy to be the guy who presents Bran with the reality of passing time and the yeah. changelessness of fate. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. I have seen quite a lot of um, talk about, oh, does this mean that we're going to move into some weird time traveling thing where Bran changes some things in the past to affect the future or to affect the present. And I don't really think it's like that. I think this is similar to the way that Jojen explained those visions um, that he was having where, do you remember, like, Bran had the visions about what's going to happen at Winterfell and then tried to stop it in real time um, but couldn't. So he knew it was going to happen at some point in the future. So he warns all these people, but they all still die. And I think that's kind of what happens here as well. It's the same thing where you can see what's happened in the past and the best you can do is, you know, you can shout something to make someone turn around, but no matter what you do, it's not going to change what actually happens um, in the same way that if you see the future in this world, doesn't matter what you do in the present, then the future's still going to happen that way eventually. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, I think that's in keeping with the sort of quite bleak, um, tone of mm. uh, of a song of ice and fire. But, yeah. mm. uh, okay, so we we move on. Uh, I mean, do, quite a few. Sorry, do we on. move on? Do we not do the last little bit, the thing that actually causes Ned to run inside the tower, or are we doing that in a bit? The lion. The the here's his sister screaming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. Uh, yeah, I should have said that. So then he runs into the tower. We don't know what happens next, do we? Um, yeah. Which Are is we going to hold what, back from speculating? Or I think well, we, we're gonna, <laughs> we've got this whole um, sort of theory to talk about, which yes, was, well, we were going to do at the end of this podcast. But judging by 
the bit we've still got to do and the, how long it's taken. Maybe we'll push this <laughs> into next week. But um, yeah, I think let's leave it there for now. With the, right, um, right, okay, yeah, cool. With the Tower of yeah. Joy Part Two, and maybe we'll revisit that depending on what happens next week in the series. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but yeah. also even if it doesn't, we'll just talk about it at the end. Um, but yeah. yeah, let's just let's sort of in the same way that the. Uh, the old, uh, the old guy just drags Bran away at the vital moment. Let's drag ourselves away from that. <laughs> you bastard! I, yeah. I, in this setup, why is it me who has to be Isaac Hempstead right and you get to be Max von friggin' Sidow? That is unfair. <laughs> you spend too much time in the spoiler world. You drown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give you that one. That was outstanding. Well done. Well done. Um, so we move on to a, couple, a few other scenes now. To be honest, the next few felt a little bit, like, a bit, a little bit sort of after the Lord Mayor show, because um, <laughs> quite a few of these things I didn't really think a great deal happened. So you got Daenerys at the uh, with all the um, women yeah. at this Vice Dothrak place once um, again, but- taking five minutes to set up something that was done in a single line of dialogue in the book. Yeah, so she's basically saying, "Look, I, you know, I came here a while back and I ate that heart and." I was going to, you know, my guy was going to be the guy who rules the entire world. And, and I quite like how the, the other, one of the other women says, look, yeah, I thought that as well when I went through what you did. But you, you come to realise that we all thought that and here we are. So, yeah, you know. it's interesting, isn't it? I do quite like that as a, as a sort of reflection on the insane self-confidence of the Dothraki kind of culture, you know, yeah. where it's all about, I will conquer the world. The stallion who mounts the world, you know, um, and actually he's and they keep all these women around whose whole thing is sitting there going, probably not, Mm. probably not going to happen that like, it's just this really interesting self-knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a weird thing to have where you just sort of bring widows back to, I think partly it's strange because obviously the, the, the death rate's so high for a carl. give you this massive social housing problem wouldn't it it's like you must if you are the widow of a cow come back to the city and sit looking melancholy and saying weird esoteric shit (laughs) although admittedly that was originally the plan um now we've dramatically underestimated the sort of death rate one sees when one is an apparently all-conquering horse lord whose closest blood riders are encouraged to try and kill him. Uh, turns out we have something of a, a, an oversupply of widows. So um, we've actually started a dormitory community. We've started moving some of the widows out into little villages around the place and, uh, and building new houses for them there. Um, uh, so uh, there's lovely shops and lovely walks to be had in the countryside, and I hope you can enjoy yourself. Thank you, thank you, thank you, <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Drogo. Thank you. Goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> um, so we've got that. We move over to uh, Marine, where the various and uh, Tyrion Roadshow continues. So uh, <laughs> Varys manages to um, sort of well bribes this one of the sort of people working with the harpies to tell mm. them who they are, and finds out that. Um, they're basically working with the slave cities of uh, Yunkai and Astapor and Volantis, I think. So three mm. cities, two of them, which Daenerys sort of had kind of conquered and then has, has, has lost again. Yeah, um, yeah. Just just reinforcing really the fact that the only purpose of that whole time was to give us some, give her a sort of yeah the the tutorial section of the video game where she learns how to rule things before she turns up in Westeros trying to look like a credible queen. 
Yeah. Um, that's the only purpose of it. And I, th- I think it really is all going to go to shit. Varys and Tyrion will get plucked out of it. Tyrion definitely will. Varys probably will. Mm. Barristan, in the books, he's just fucked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be the end of it, because now they don't matter, you know. Yeah. In the meantime, Tyrion's um, trying and failing to get Grey Worm and Missende to sort of let the hair down for once and not have a giant stick up their asses. But uh, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's quite good that because it just shows the sort of. D- Tyrion in the first three episodes here really does feel like he's floundering a bit in um, dragon taming aside um, in sort of the culture of Marine and sort of the things that he normally does, like drinking games and stuff to get to know people he can't do over here because they're just like what we don't we don't really get you to really yeah. know what you're on about you know yeah yeah i i quite liked that because it was the scene of these two these two actors just going like, what do you talk about when you converse patrol i go on patrol who i saw on patrol who i killed on patrol come back tell me sunday about patrol and it's just is this it's quite touchingly rubbish really isn't it it's like it's like the least interesting domestic life imaginable yeah <laughs> especially since they're not having sex you know just sort of like it's like they fast forwarded to that bit 60 years into a marriage where it's just like what you do today not a lot you not a lot right <laughs> cory yeah let's put cory on <laughs> yeah yeah so so you got that you've got um, a scene over in king's landing then with um Kyburn and the kids, so the little birds that used to work for Varys, and they're working for Kyburn, and he's giving them sweets to make mm. sure that they uh, they keep going, uh, they keep working for him. And we also, this is the moment where you mentioned earlier on where they make it plain that you know the mountain is this massive hulking Robert Strong. Oh guy. yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to know my favorite bit about this scene? Yeah. Do you yeah. want to know my fa- my favorite bit was now? Are you familiar? with the bad lip-reading video of Game of Thrones on YouTube. Oh, yeah, 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 I am. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you notice the callback that they put into this scene to that? Um, is this the bit in the small council meeting? Yeah, it's a small council meeting. <laughs> yeah. where So the, the, the bad lip-reading thing has a thing where, like, the only appearance that is really, really funny, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you've got to go and download it, you've got to go watch it on yeah. YouTube. Bad lip-reading presents Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's, it's, really uh, funny. it's called Medieval Fun Time World, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Medieval Happy Fun Time World, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, um, uh, yeah, so the only appearance that um, Grandmaster Wicker Wicker, Grandmaster Pycelle appears in it with is uh, as sort of as an outtake towards the end where um like they just do this thing where it's like they're trying to have a conversation in the small throne room and they just dub over it what they think is happening and they make it look like he has this enormous fart problem <laughs> this like massive kind of like these not these big trumps but just these like really kind of weedy little thin noise kind of farts type thing um <laughs> And in this scene, when Sir Roberts, when uh, Gregor Clegane walks in, just as he's being badmouthed by Grandmaster Pycelle, he does the same fart. They went and got the sound file and they put it in. So not only are we treated to the sign of a character literally shitting themselves when somebody massive who they've been badmouthing walks up silently behind them, they did it in a callback to a fan video. And ladies and gentlemen, they win just for doing that. Outstanding. Yeah, I thought it was... But it's got... It's, um 
drawn a bit of criticism that um because it's it feels so out of keeping with the rest of the tone of the series but i thought oh, it was i thought it was, I thought it was hilarious I was, it was funny <laughs> also the tone of the rest of the series is relentlessly depressing so if you're going to put a fart gag in there quite frankly go to it with my blessing <laughs> So yeah, that small council bit's interesting as well because um, you've got Sir Kevin Lannister, obviously, who we we know what happens to in the books. He um, he's quite clearly um, throwing his lot in with the Tyrells here. Is it? It's him and the Tyrells, and his embarrassment of a, a nephew and niece is just kind of hoping we'll just stay out of the way now, which is quite interesting. Yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, bit of a internal politics there, and and a cheeky fart gag on the side. Um, <laughs> we see this uh, interaction between Tommen and the High Sparrow. This <sighs> is uh, the thing I wanted to say about this is um, so this High Sparrow stuff. I uh, watching it, I was thinking it's quite kind of interesting that you got sort of he's still putting this moral case forward the High Sparrow. Um, yeah, but um, I don't know. A, a lot of commentary I've seen on this seems to assume that he's um, just as sort of. Uh, I don't know, just as cynical as all the other people trying to grab power. Do you think that's true of this High Sparrow guy? Um, Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just trying to cultivate Tommen, isn't he? He's just trying to make him, you know, get him on, which is a fairly audacious play, is it not? Mm. Um, Somebody turns up with armed guards saying, do this for me, and what you go to is straight to kind of genial uncle kind of behaviour. Yeah. Um, as we've seen in this universe, genial uncle behavior almost always precedes you getting screwed. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't hold out much hope for Tommen, but then I never did. Um, hmm. Where he got this kind of touching naivety from in his gene pool is completely beyond <laughs> me, since it's clearly the product of, of you know, Cersei and Jamie having sex. Hmm. Hmm. But, um, uh, interesting scene. I'm a bit bored by it, though, to be honest. Like, yeah. like I say, this whole thing with the with the the High Sparrow and the whatever it's been, you know, the Faith Militant and all of that has never really been properly sketched. I do think they're just in the TV series just to be antagonists. You know, this kind of facelessly intimidating presence of self righteousness and violence all mixed up together. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, eh. You know, because I don't, I don't find the High Sparrow to be a, a three-dimensional character. He's mm. just playing this kind of power game, same as everybody else, but doing it in more hypocritical terms. Yeah, um, and that's not interesting. Uh, yeah, I wonder what's going to happen to Tom in here. He's being pulled in two directions, isn't he? And it, I, I get the feeling he's he's not, you know, he's not shutting either side down. And I just wonder if he might end up being pulled towards the faith militant side almost becoming another sort of bail or the blessed kind of leader yeah well um, i mean that's definitely that what the high sparrow is making a play for isn't it but i mm. mean i don't really know what the significance of that would even be because i don't know what impact that would have on characters i care about there's yeah. nothing going on in king's landing that i'm i mean they're trying their hardest to make me care about cersei and jamie but mm, um it's just like right now whenever we're in king's landing i'm like well you're a shower of bastards somehow apparently ostensibly led by the most mm. naive person in the whole of westeros mm. So where am I yeah. connecting there, you know? Yeah. Um, next up, Arya gets a sight back. Hooray! Finally. Hooray! 
uh, which again is just sort of moving along what we already knew in the books, really. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Although, but she does seem to sincerely, externally, she sincerely seems to have embraced the lesson she's been taught, which isn't what happened in the books. In the mm. book, she kind of goes, yeah, 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 whatever. Going to kill him, going to kill him, going to kill him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely going along with this, yeah. A girl has no name. Right, right, nice one. Oh, got me eyes back, have I? Cracking. Fuck off. Yeah. Like, there's, there's, it's nowhere near as, as, um, as nuanced as it is in the books, this. It does seem mm. that she's generally gone through a sort of um, uh, Clockwork Orange reprogramming experience, mm. really, doesn't it? And that's, yeah. again, that's not too interesting. Yeah, that's interesting because she does the... Um... She does the assassin. She sort of she kills Darian, doesn't she? The uh, black brother, and then mm. that's what kicks off this whole um, in the books. This I'm talking about. That's what kicks off this whole. Um, we're going to put you through the tr- blind training program, um, and in in the series, she kills Marion Trant, doesn't she? And then he gets put through this. But yeah, as we've seen from, from the Winds of Winter chapter, even after she's been through this process in the books, at least she still kills people because of you know, what they've done to Arya Stark herself. Mm, um, mm. It'd be interesting to see if that's the direction she goes in now, but you're right, it feels like she's just bought into this wholeheartedly now, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. We're back up in the north. Um, oh, right, this is where it, this is where it got started to get really interesting again for me. So um, the Umbers turn up uh in so it's worth just putting reminding ourselves what's going on in the books in the books the umbers split into two one half join up with the boltons and the other half stay um sort of join up with stannis because there's no stark because these are the guys who are known as the most loyal of all the bannermen yeah in the series it looks like they just think balls to this we're gonna we're gonna throw him with uh the boltons now so one yeah. of the Umbers turn up. We're told, this is strange, Yeah, I think we're supposed to take from this that this guy's the small John, who in the yeah. books is killed at the Red Wedding defending Rob. And it seems to imply that the great John was killed at the Red Wedding instead. Um, yeah. So we're not going to see that guy again, which is a shame because he was great in series one. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but as with so many things in the North, interesting characters seem to be discarded for oh shit, what's going to happen to the Stark kids now? Hmm. Yeah. And again, at a certain point, I've stopped wondering about that. It's fairly clear to me that the makers of the TV series are going to screw the characters I care about until, you know, the end of time. So hmm. there's no tension in it for me anymore. Yeah. So this so this Umber swaggers him, um, says, he calls, drops a C-bomb left, right and centre. I did quite like find it quite interesting, actually. But, um, but at the end, he brings in Rickon and Osha mm. uh, and the head of... Rickon's direwolf and says, Here you go, is a free gift from the Umbers, most loyal Barnumen to the Starks. What's yeah. going on here? Do, do, do you, a, do you buy this as a genuine betrayal? And B, mm. if that's the case, do you buy it's possible considering the background to these characters? I don't buy that it's possible. I don't mm. think it's a good way of reintroducing the character since they've just taken yet another opportunity to re establish Ramsay Snow, Ramsay Bolton, as a one-dimensional complete bastard. Hmm. Given that they've just done that again, and now they introduce a very important part of the plot back into that, what's he going to do? Sit down and become his best mate? You know, there's no way out of this that's not either cheesily implausible Hmm. or depressingly, boringly predictable. Yeah. So I don't really know where you go from here. Like, even if it is some sort of weird bait-and-switch situation, first of all, 
that is a hell of a way to do it, killing a direwolf in order to make that happen. Um, but if it's not, which it, so it seems to be sincere, fine. I was, however, enjoying in the scene up until um, up until it happened, up until he brought in Brand Stark, uh, Brickon Stark, and just started dicking around with the plot structure. Mm. Um, I was enjoying the plain talking because you know yeah. you've been waiting for somebody to come in and tell Ramsay Snow that for a long time, haven't you? Like, just somebody to look him in the face and mm. just tell him exactly what he is. Um, so that was pleasing, but then it turned out to be, you know, the, the, they put a bait and switch in the scene, mm. um, uh, which was, you know, pleasing in the scene, but frustrating in the structure of the overall the overall thing, you know? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really torn with this because... Honestly, I don't think it's... Weighing it up, it doesn't feel plausible that it's a bait and switch. Yeah. But also weighing it up, it doesn't feel um, plausible that the Umbers would just... These guys just who are flip. known... Yeah. Yeah, these guys who are known as uh, like the, the most loyal Bannermen to the, to the Starks. I could see a, possibly see a case for them finally thinking, all oh, the Starks are dead, we've got no choice now. We may as well, and and that this is kind of what happens in the books, isn't it? They think, well, all the Starks yeah. are dead. We've no choice. We may as well play both sides. So they send half to Stannis, half to Bruce yeah. Bolton. Yeah. Um, but I mean, here they get a Stark. So, yeah. So, they, so they, they they've got every. So all they need to do is sort of say, we've got this. We've got a Stark boy, and then here we go. Rally as many, yeah, Bannerman to, the, yeah. to them as they can. So. Yeah. So why would they not do that if they were these uh, yeah. belligerent loyalists? Yeah. It feels just so unbelievable. But at the same time, so we've got, okay, so that's unbelievable. So then we fall back on, well, it must be a bait and switch then. In which case, the plan is, I just can't understand how this, A, what people are saying is, A, um, this direwolf head is too small. It's some, it's some normal wolf's head that's just a bit big. Which feel again, if that's true, feels a little cheap. Um, yeah, it is a little cheap. It was a pretty bad prop as well, though. Did you see it? it looked like it came out of the Yorvik yeah. Viking Museum yeah, in New York, yeah. circa yeah. 1985, didn't it? Yeah, uh, and then you've also got um, yeah. So they bring Rickon over just to sort of to buy the way in um, because they won't they won't swear any vows because they're yeah. very loyal. So I suppose that kind of works. But they bring Rickon down. I yeah. mean, I just don't know if you got that precious a character yeah um, sh- surely the chances are knowing what everyone knows about ramsey yeah um the likelihood is he'll just shank him as soon as he appears this rickon yeah. character yeah so there's no that's my thing is there's not tension in this there's just oh well there's just disappointment there's mm-hmm. just well that that was an interesting little plot nugget yeah rickon's been off somewhere and we don't know where how interesting he mm-hmm. is lost he is not oh he's with ramsey right there we go yeah and I you're right I... that the problem with that isn't mostly that you bring him into this horrible situation. It's that any of the things that you could plausibly do to get him back out of it would be unrealistic in the story mm. universe that you've created. So now mm. you're you're setting me up for disappointment either way, basically. Either it's boring or it's unbelievable. Yeah. I think it's gonna be the I think it's gonna be a I still think it's if I have to guess, I think it's gonna be a bait and switch and it's but they're gonna have to do a hell of a job to make it believable because it seems <laughs> yeah. like the worst plan in the world is. Absolutely. A fucking phenomenal job. Oh, and actually, there's another reason that it makes no sense for the, the Umbers to go there is that um, he, when he's in the scene, he mentions that he knows Jon Snow's at the wall. 
you know, yeah. and he, he says, you know, this is one of the political realities of your whatever, you know. So why the fuck didn't he go there? <laughs> like, what on earth is he playing at? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I was, I was unimpressed with that yeah. scene. Profoundly unimpressed. I suppose with 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 the with the wildlings, Jon Snow at the wall, they hate the wildlings more than any others. So maybe there's something there because they're the guys yeah. who have to keep fighting the wildlings yeah, when they sneak over. And yeah. it just turns yeah. out that one of the, the the last remaining Stark, apart from this guy, they just about to give up, um, yeah. has been letting wildlings through the wall. So I can see why they wouldn't. They'd be a bit mistrust. They'd they'd think something's gone massively wrong with the Night's Watch. Yeah. But yeah, still, this this idea of giving up Rickon seems it's just so hard to square, knowing what you know about the universe, even yeah. in the se- even within the series, it yeah. seems hard to square. But we'll we'll yeah. see. Very um, very much. Yeah. And the final bit is uh, John passing the sentence on. So Alistair Ooh. Thorne, Bowen Marsh, um, who's the builder, Othel Yarwick, and uh, yeah. the the kid. Who isn't in the books, so I don't know his name. <laughs> um, oh, what's his name? Ollie, Ollie, he, that's him. Ollie, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah. They all get hung by yeah. uh, by Stark, by John back from the dead. Totsamosh. Yeah, Totsamosh. Uh, especially the little bit. I mean, Alistair does his speech, which I thought was quite good. Yeah. Um, John has this sort of like look with Ollie. Things like, how has it come to this? Yeah. And um, and at the end, John takes his cloak off and basically says. <laughs> peace out i'm done yeah uh, my watch is ended and i love so, that as a scene yeah, I, lo- yeah. I absolutely loved it what do you think of it overall of the decision and then the, de- the two decisions one to kill these guys and two to to leave i think the the decision to kill those guys is indispensable i mean like there's a certain extent to which that's just his character and it is interesting to see this whole scene as a playoff between what his character is and the role that he has been obliged to play as mm. a as lord commander of the night's watch um, so he, I think he does this as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch because of what his character is like. Because his character is very formed by Ned Stark and that, you know, you've got to pass the sentence on the man that you're sentenced. You know, you've got to do it yourself. Hmm. And he does. And he lets him speak. And he doesn't argue. And he doesn't say, well, fuck you as well then, Thorn. You know, he doesn't get in Ollie's face. He's just very quiet and very sad. Hmm. Um, and particularly with Ollie, because you complete... And I, I thought the character that played Ollie was fantastic. The actor who played Ollie was just hmm. great because to the very end, you could see that he was driven by this hatred of the fact that these people who had killed all of his family were being embraced by his mentor. Hmm. And, you know, he really kind of flipped over and was really, really angry at John and stayed that way up until he died. Hmm. Um, so I thought that was really, really good. And I thought John... Um, killed them as 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 part of his role and did it himself because that is what his character is like. Yeah. But then he left because at that point he lays aside the role and stays true to his character rather than to the role he's been asked to do. And I think he does it with complete impunity here because his watch has ended. He died. What do you hmm. say? What do you say when you um, when you consign a, a member of the Night's Watch uh to the fire when he's died? You say now his watch has ended. Hmm. And so he walks away and says, my watch has ended. And I think that's legit. Mm. I think he was Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And he was killed by the Night's Watch. (laughs) And he's left. His watch has ended. I don't think that's necessarily what he wanted. But I think, you know, you could definitely see how being there, there's nothing for him there, is there? You know what I mean? He's tried and tried and tried and it killed him. And I could totally understand why at that point he's like, do you know what? Finish with it now. I'm not doing it again. Screw it. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out. 
Yeah. Well, that's where we leave it. So, um, look, we were going to do a discussion about one of the theories as well, but we, we're closing in on the <laughs> two hours as it is, so an, let's shut that to next week. record length yeah. Shark Liver Oil. We, we, should, we should have a bit more time um, in the weeks to come because we're just going to be looking at one episode um, and then we'll talk f- a few fan theories. If you've got some yeah. of your own to get into us, Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shark Liver Oil Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for the contribution so far. Um, mm. And uh, we, we do try to reply to every email as well. So um, even if it's not read out in the cast. So we will go through a few of those as we move along. Um, and. I hope you enjoyed last, like the most recent Game of Thrones episode, which we will be looking at in a bit more detail next week. Dave, yeah. until then. Till then, Matt. Uh, some other things just to just to tell you, we're on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil, and of course you can find our um, Shark uh, podcast now. We've got our own website. Um, the safest way to find out at the moment is Shark Liver Oil Podcast.podbean.com. But um, we're also working on a on a link for it, an ex- extra link for it as well. So watch your space. All done. All done. In that case, until next week. Until next week, Matt. Goodbye. Bam. 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 Thank you, man.